Blog Talk Radio. Gonna tell you a little bedtime tale, legend it will become. Burgers flying out the door, sail on. Two for one, no concern for the future. Living for today. Fast food bite on your way, lay it all to waste. The masses are afflicted now. Moo, mad cow. Mad cow. Mad cow, mad cow, line dance song. Hey, Shanghai Nation. Welcome to the show on another Friday afternoon. Sanghai with you as normal. Real quick, before we jump into things, some show notes. If you are looking for some professional wrestling in the next few days, tonight, WCWO in Indianapolis at the Outlaw Arena, 1151 South Kentucky Avenue, FGW in Hamilton, Ohio, OCW in Bristol, Connecticut, Defy Wrestling here in Seattle, Washington, and Supreme Wrestling in Madison, Indiana. Tomorrow night, Wrestle Club, where you can find myself in Nampa, Idaho. Gouge has Malloween in Raleigh, North Carolina. PAPW in East Haven, Connecticut. BCW in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Supreme Wrestling back at it tomorrow in Madison, Indiana. And IPW in Bristol, Tennessee. So if you have wrestling near you, get out there and support the local independents. Maybe pick up some merchandise, support the wrestlers themselves. But without any further ado, I want to welcome our guest back today. He has been with us before. We're very, very pleased to have him again. Mike Rogers, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Well, the fans that are familiar with your past experiences know that you have written a series of books, and you have come out very recently with another installment, this one, The Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers. It's been successful already, I know, but it's just getting started, just getting out there. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what this project is and how it came to be. Sure. I, my previous books, I had three books on interviews that I had done in my bulletin. I ran a bulletin for 30 years called Ring Around the Northwest, and in each bulletin I tried to have an interview, and so I um, cultivated all those, and, and there were enough interviews for three books, and those those were called Excitement in the Air, The Voices of Northwest Wrestling. Then I, I did a book on, called Katie Bar the Door, and it was kind of a timeline of different events that had happened um, through Portland Wrestling, and we really focused from 60 to, to 92. And those books were all so much fun. I wanted to try and figure out, is there any more to be written about Portland Wrestling? And, and then I kind of decided that what if we did a biographical sketch of every single wrestler that wrestled at the Portland Sports Arena. And that time frame would have been from 1968 
1992. And uh, once again, just jumped into it. So much fun. I learned a lot. Um, I was surprised that as I, we were coming to the end that it looked like it was going to format into over 500 pages. And, and I think it come, came out at 507 pages. So hopefully, at least in quantity, you'll feel like you're, you're getting your money's worth. Well, like you said, there's been a lot of people over the years that have passed through Portland and the Pacific Northwest. When you very first started this project, I know you realized that there were a lot of rustlers that would be and should be involved, but did you realize when you first started this project how many people actually did pass through the territory? I I knew I had a good handle on who was here. Um, but the one thing that really surprised me is I really started digging in. How many wrestlers, Portland was their very first territory or their very first match. Like I think Don Morocco had his very first match here. And even though he, he really was wrestling in Vancouver, he came down and had his first match in Portland and then had a run in Vancouver. Um, lots and lots of guys that you know, there's always the Jesse Venturas and the ones that that you credit with coming to Portland. But there's a lot, a lot of other guys um, that made an early stop here that that kind of don't you've forgotten about or don't don't realize. Like the Barbarian was here, and he was a very obscure wrestler by the name of Tonga John, and uh, that's that's one of my favorites. It's like, oh, that guy ended up being the Barbarian, you know, and. And uh, that was something that, you know, I learned along the way. I didn't didn't even realize that. Now, the late Tracy Smothers was on our show a few times, and he told us the story of how when he was looking to come into Portland Wrestling and was given a date, Don Owen called him up and said that he could no longer use him because he had a wrestler whose wife was pregnant, so he wasn't going to be able to fire the wrestler after all because the guy <laughs> needed the money. Had you ever heard that story of Tracy's mother's almost coming to Portland? No, I had never heard that one. That's very interesting. Um, over the years, there were a few wrestlers who got um, advertised that they were on their way here, and for whatever reason, never showed up. Probably the most prominent one was Ivan Putsky. They billed him for several weeks, and uh, then I think he ended up going to the WWF right at that at that same time. But you know that um, uh, that was a big name. You know, it was probably around 1974, 75. You know, at that time you don't realize. You just realize that wrestlers have big names. You may not realize the the quality of their wrestling, um, but uh, yeah, Ivan Butsky also another one was uh, El Brasero, a, a wrestler who wrestles around Indianapolis. He was billed for a few weeks. So it's if and those guys are in the book too. We we had a section of wrestlers that almost made it here, but 
Tracy Smothers. I had never heard that story before. I will find the episode where he told the story and get that to you. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, you mentioned El Bracero, who was a very, very long time Indianapolis-based wrestler. Uh, he more or less homesteaded in Indianapolis. But there was another guy in Indianapolis who came out to this area for a while. He wrestled not only for the main Portland office, but for Dean Silverstone and also for Al Tomko, that being Greg Lake, who is still active in the wrestling industry as a referee. Do you remember Greg Lake at all in this area, and did he make the book? He made the book. Greg is a good friend of mine, and Greg is maybe one of the the more humorous entrants in there. And uh, Greg's well aware of my feelings, and and this is how, without reading it outright, this is this is what uh, the entrant for Greg Lake says. When when myself when I was young, all my friends would hit me, you know. Just just as we were friends, but that was just I was must have been punchable, and uh, it wasn't I'm mad at you or anything. It was just they're my friends and they punch me. That's ex- <laughs> for some reason that's exactly how I feel about Greg Lake, and I, I've told him that, and, and he laughs. Greg will will have a conversation with himself like. What in what's in the book? It's as example. It's like, oh, I wonder if I need a coat today. It rained yesterday, but it's pretty warm today. And he'll go on and on and on with that conversation with himself. And by the end, you just want to punch him. And uh, but but he did make the the book with that funny a- anecdote. And uh, um, yeah, he wrestled here and with for Dean Silverstone and and in All Star in Vancouver. So he he did make the book. Everybody made the book. <laughs> now, speaking of Dean Silverstone, uh, for younger listeners that may not be totally aware, he promoted a secondary promotion within the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he did not really do direct competition with Don Owen, but he had a territory that encompassed Idaho and eastern Washington and I believe some of eastern Oregon. It was a separate uh, territory for all intents and purposes, but they did sort of trade talent back and forth with the main Portland office and Vancouver. Did you include some of the talent that might have passed through Dean Silverstone's company that did not necessarily work for the main Portland territory. The only the only entrance into this is if they wrestled at the Portland Sports Arena. That's really the only criteria. So as an example, Greg Lake, he wrestled in Portland. Patty Ryan, he wrestled in Portland. Lumberjack Luke wrestled in Portland. Um I know Tito Montez was more almost more of a Portland wrestler than a, a Dean Silverstone. But if they if they didn't make it to the sports arena, they didn't make it in the book. Fair enough. <laughs> now, 
when we look at the history of Portland wrestling, sort of like you alluded to, there were some guys that came in that maybe didn't necessarily fit the mold of what someone would think of for Portland wrestling, guys that you didn't necessarily think of when you thought of how Portland wrestling was or guys you didn't think of going out of their home territory very much. Who would you say might be one of the oddest bookings that we had in the Portland territory as far as guys that, whether it was a one-off or just a really short time, did not seem to really fit into the territory? Um, A great example of that, it would be Great Goliath. We always think of him as an L.A. wrestler or um, maybe a little bit in Texas, but primarily in Mexico or or Los Angeles. Los Angeles would kind of take a a break during Christmas time, and uh, usually every year for about two weeks. And one year, uh, 1978, Goliath came up to, to Portland for that break. And, uh, you know, they, he wasn't going to stay around, so he didn't get a push. Um, he was here probably a couple weeks. I don't think he really, let me look here and see if I can tell if he even won any matches. So he went to draws with Johnny Eagle, Hector Guerrero, uh, Lanny, Lanny Poffo, uh, and he had a loss to Lanny Poffo. So he, I have four recorded matches of while he was here and, but He's someone, if you ask, did Goliath ever wrestle in Portland? Most people would probably not realize that he had. Um, Another example, Eddie Mansfield. Eddie Mansfield came in uh, for one night. Um, I really think they intended to push him. Um, I had had a chance to ask Don Owen about him, and Don said he really didn't like his attitude and and, – Fired him on the on the first night. Uh, that was kind of an, an interesting one. Wrestler, he didn't wrestle, but he came to kind of. I think he came to uh, scout some some talent. Giant Baba was here one night in I believe 1974, and he came up for an interview. And Haru Suzaki accompanied him, and and they had an interview. And and uh, the one thing that I I or I tried to look back at was who was in the area of the night that uh, Baba was here, and Jimmy Snuka then started. He had a tour of all Japan later in that year, later in 1974, and uh, Sergeant Slaughter, Bob Remus, was there that night, and he had a tour the following year. So that's kind of fun to to take a look at that and try and uh, even though you weren't weren't in the back room, try to figure out what's what's going on back there. Obviously, the wrestling in Portland, like every other territory, was going to be made or broke by a lot of the support staff. There were referees, promoters, the announcers that went into Portland wrestling and helped mold it into what the fans loved out of Portland wrestling. Did you focus any on the support staff, guys that weren't necessarily wrestlers but had an 
impact on Portland wrestling within the book at any level? Um, we talk about referees, um, and there's um, really not a lot of referees that went through Portland. Sandy Barr held down that for quite a few years. Uh, Shag Thomas before him. Um, Luke Brown came into the area and did a lot of spot shows, you know, later later on in the later 70s, early 80s. Um, so we, we tried to touch on the referees. Um, we didn't really touch on on the promoters or the announcers. I think we touched upon them in, in Katie Bar the Door. Um, I think we more or less just stuck to the wrestlers. And when you are researching the book, I know you would be considered a historian and a very, very good one. But did you go to other people that were around when Portland Wrestling was running and get their feedback or ask for input on certain guys and kind of get a gauge of an outside perspective on certain wrestlers? Or was it own uh, research that you did that was strictly from you that went into the book? At times, I, I asked my friend Ken Hamlin for um, help with photographs, and maybe it's, it was like, "Did you do you remember this guy or you know that guy?" Um, but one one site that that I did go to is is the Russell Data site. Um, when I'm thinking about other places where wrestlers had come in, you know, and and they're looking at their entire career that I can't say enough good things about about that website as far as just the overall scope of information that they have. Um, and then, you know, I would look to see where did that wrestler go when they left here, you know, and, and uh, uh, I know Killer Carl Krupp, this is just an example. He left unexpectedly Portland, and I had seen some, uh, a letter, between Elton Owen and, and Dutch Savage, where they were unhappy with him, especially after all the time that they'd put in, and it, it made me really want to want to look. Where did he go? What what place seemed like it had greener pastures than than Portland right at that time? And he ended up going to Stampede Wrestling, and for for whatever reason, still in the winter, <laughs> that seemed a little bit more. Uh, the place he wanted to be, at least at that time. So yeah, Wrestle Data is the the one place that really, really helped me with with information. Speaking of old Ken Hamlin, he of course got his start in the industry doing pictures and uh, sort of helping out with grunt work, for lack of a better term, around the Portland office. Uh, he was a photographer, did work in the programs, uh, helped out just here and there with what they needed. A lot of times photographers were taken for granted in professional wrestling, even still to this day a lot of times that is the case, but they chronicle a lot of the history of our sport with the photos. I know... In years past, it was largely to sell 
photos to the magazines or for wrestler to sell at the merchandise stands. But without the photos, a lot of times things would be lost to history without the photos. Do you think that a lot of the photography that came out of Portland has helped keep Portland wrestling in the forefront of a lot of fans' minds? Because without a lot of these photos, a lot of the things that happen may not be remembered. Oh, exactly. And it's, and also, you know, what did this guy look like? You know, we, of all the different people that we, um, uh, profiled in the book there's only a handful that we couldn't find a picture of and you know some of them are very very obscure and we were fortunate enough to find a picture picture of them and ken helped tremendously with that um throughout the 80s he's just the person to go to we're also lucky enough to have a person who's helped us out a lot lloyd phillips and he was in portland in the late 60s and early 70s through the mid-70s, and we've utilized a lot of his photography, too. And he his style of photography is primarily black and white, and it just his pictures are so sharp and so clear, they just jump off the page. And um, so really, really fortunate to have him help with his work as well. So, yeah... The photography is just really, really important. You know, we we can have the text and tell you about him, but if you have the picture there to visualize what what this person looks like, I think that just just is helps tremendously. Writing the newsletter for as long as you did obviously gave you some writing background in professional wrestling, but going through the processes of writing the books, and I know the earlier ones were more or less reprints out of the newsletters, but did the newsletter prepare you for writing the books and going through the entire process of what it takes to get a book from the thought of having it to the store shelf? Yes, I I think so. um, You know, originally uh, I started the bulletin so far back that I didn't even have a computer. I was just doing it on the typewriter. And, you know, I'd make a mistake and and just type over the top of it, you know, and and it's like, oh, well, they'll be able to figure out what what that word means, even though it's just a jumbled mess now. But um, it did, you know. Some things you're you're writing and you're you try to be a little bit careful because, especially when I started in '83, it was, you know, that kayfabe was still alive, and you, if anybody were to see it, you'd want to want to have that balance of where you're not just flaunting your writing in their in the wrestler's face. And you're respecting it at the same time. It's a, it's a tough balance at times, you know, especially back in the early 80s. Um, you want to try as you're writing. With this, I tried not to have too many opinions, just straightforward information. 
Um, but that's, you know, you try to balance that too, where somebody reads it, you know, one of the wrestlers actually reads their, their bio and they're not happy with, with, you know, how it turned out or whatever. I'm, I'm tried to hit mostly, um, true information, just, just facts, like when they were here, how they did, you know, what titles they held. Thinking way, way back when I was in high school and thinking about what my career might be, I I thought that I'd like to go into journalism, but I really knew the only thing I wanted to write about was wrestling. So I didn't go into, into journalism. I went into teaching instead. And uh, now that I'm retired, I'm getting that chance to to do this writing, and I'm just having so much fun with it. Have you ever gotten serious heat from someone in the wrestling industry because of something you've written either in the newsletter or the books about them? You know, there was there was one occasion um, way back. There was <laughs> I was at a match, watching the match, and the match was horrible, just horrible. And one of the wrestlers, it, it was that wrestler's fault. The other wrestler in the match, as the match came to the conclusion, rolled out, and I, I knew him. He rolled out towards me and said, oh, please, please have mercy on me. And I, I'm, I'm laughing to myself. It's like, I don't have that much power, you know. And I made a smart aleck remark about that match and the wrestlers who whose fault it was or or who was having a tough night that night happened to call me. He was he was somebody that I had known and he just said don't <laughs> he said don't write like that or don't, you know, he was upset. And I thought I thought to myself, okay, what's the purpose of writing negatively. If something's bad, maybe you just don't say anything, you know, and just focus on the good. So that's what I tried to do. You know, I learned a lesson from that. You know, it's like, what's the point of rubbing it in somebody's face that they had a, you know, they're the ones who know they had a bad match or made a mistake or something. So from that point on, you know, I, I learned that it's probably just better to focus on the positive and the and the really good things that you see. And if you see something bad, you know, just don't mention it and that wrestler doesn't doesn't get as much praise or anything and and uh, that way, you know, there's it's not fun to go to the matches and then have to duck people or be nervous that somebody's going to be upset with you. You know, you go to the matches to have fun and, and, uh, watch the matches. And, and so that's something, that's something that I try to avoid for, for both of those reasons. And when you look back, do you think there is, ever a time when the wrestlers themselves would change what they were doing if you were live in the arena watching them wrestling as opposed to if they either did not know you were there or you actually were not there? 
I don't think a lot of wrestlers knew who I who I was by sight. I don't, and I also think I think that maybe the bulletin is getting more credit from that aspect. I don't I don't think there's anybody that really would care if I were in the building. The bulletin didn't carry that much weight. It was only seen by a hundred people maybe at at any given month. I will give an example and and Ed Moretti's a really good friend of mine. We would travel back and forth and together and go to shows when I was refing and there he would be the person when he knew I was in the building he would he would always try to make me laugh and uh one time he he leans over and he he says. Nothing but Jimmy Snuka spots tonight, and I'm—I always think Ed's really funny in the in the first place, and uh, he immediately breaks out into the Jimmy Snuka dance, which of course just looks ridiculous for Ed Ed to be doing that. And uh, another example: one time Ed was wrestling uh, Tim Flowers, and I was in the front row, and somebody t- went into the turnbuckle in the top top turnbuckle pops off with the with the hook and Ed glances at me and I, I did the normal thing that anybody would have thought of. I took my finger and fish hooked into the into the corner of my mouth. <laughs> so he immediately grabs the turnbuckle and I know he's he's not really sticking it into Tim's mouth, but he's he's <laughs> working the working the turnbuckle in his you know and then he'd look back at me and laugh and <laughs> So Ed's the one person who would I think he he made it a goal to see if he could get a laugh out of me. And the the one other funny thing was a lot of times he'd be teaming with Richie Magnet and Richie Magnet sold nothing. Richie I think would be laughing. I asked Ed what does Richie think of when you're when you're cutting up and he, he just oh no, he won't sell anything. He just kind of he kind of laughs without moving his mouth. It just goes <laughs> like that, and uh, so I think maybe maybe Ed was trying to make Richie laugh as well. Uh, Richie was one of those guys where you would see him and you might think, "Well, he's not too much in the ring based on appearance." but then he would throw one of the best drop kicks you will ever have seen, and he did things that would defy what you would think would come out of him athletically just by first glance at him. Do you think that Richie might be one of the more underrated wrestlers that we've had come out of Portland? Oh, I I really think so. I have two Richie, Richie stories. One time... He was in a battle royal in Cloverdale, and uh, he he was coming back into the into the dressing room. The the match was over, and I was I was back in the I was right behind him coming back into the into the dressing room, and and uh, he's shaking hands with the, the dressing room in Cloverdale is really small. He's shaking hands with with people as you know that he worked with in the battle royal, and he's you know real quiet. And then, but he comes up to somebody who stiffed him, and that kid was really green and and young. 
But Richie made a point. He goes, but you, you stiffed me. And he let him know that what he did wasn't okay. And Richie was always so quiet. And he was that quiet leader in the in the dressing room. And everybody took notice of Richie, you know, speaking out forcefully. And, and uh, another... Another Richie story is one time uh, we were both working for um, um, in Tacoma for Dave Debashi, and Dave had monitors set up in the back, and I was not refing that particular match. And that match that we were watching on the on the monitor came to a, a conclusion, and uh, Richie was wrestling next, and I was refing his match. Richie doesn't say anything to me. He just reaches over and chops me right in the chest, like, like here we go, and uh, I didn't. I just went oh like that. But inside, I was so happy that that little action made me so happy. It felt like, you know, Richie must think I'm okay because he, you know, it was a, it was a term of endearment or a move of endearment, you know, that, that I guess I fit in with him at least. One of the things about this most recent book is when it came out, it was the number one bestseller in wrestler biographies. Number two was The Man by Becky Lynch. She has the benefit of being on national television multiple times a week and plugging the book on national television. You, of course, not on national television nor even regional television to do the same thing, but yet your book was ahead of hers. What do you think of that type of achievement when you have the best-selling book in wrestler biographies and you're doing it on your own without a national company putting the push to you? I I was really tickled by that. And I, I know it's that first, first day or first week that it comes out, you know, that people who are who buy books, you know, wrestling fans and and maybe people that I know that's the little window that the the book's going to be purchased by by them but I was very surprised and and tickled to see that it it was in that spot and um that was a uh, I noticed that it was you know at times ahead of the the Becky Lynch book and the new Jim Ross book that's coming out, you know, after the new year and, and everything. And, and, uh, I've had books, you know, at least for a day hit like number two and is always behind them when the Moxley book was hot. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really tickled and really proud that, that, uh, that had happened. And, uh, a little surprised, a little surprised. And, uh, but I definitely appreciate it. And when you have a book like that that is number one on the bestsellers list, do you think that that helps with the other books that you've already written? Did you notice a spike in P 
people picking up the previous works when they see how well the new one is doing? Yeah, I, I think so. There's, you know, the some of the other books have been out two years now, and and even yesterday, I I just glance every once in a while to see if you know it's almost to the point where you can see when there's one one copy sold. A couple of them are in the one thousandth most most popular, and um, I think yesterday or a couple days ago, two of the two of the interview books, the Excitement in the Air books, were in the top one hundred. Which which meant that one or two copies got sold, you know, to to move it up to that point. Katie Bar the Door has continued. It's been out about a year and a half now, and it's continuously hits in the top hundred, you know, and then it'll it'll slide down. I think at this very moment it's probably about two hundredth, but it'll sell a copy, and you know you'll see it, and it shoots back up into the top hundred, and it's it's. You know the the money's nice, but I I'm just always tickled when I hear people like the books. That's what's much more gratifying to me. Um, do you get a lot of people within the wrestling industry that contact you to congratulate you on the book or? discuss what they like, dislike about the book, things of that nature? I saw um, Larry Oliver, and he evidently wasn't pleased with what I had written about his father. And, um, um, you know, Larry and I had a little bit of a conversation, and it was like, as I reread what I had written about Rip, um, I felt like it was a really good job. He, I complimented him. There were certain things where Rip carried the entire promotion for, you know, some years. Um, there was a match, the the Road Warriors versus Bruiser Brody and, and Rip Oliver, and I, I complimented because my memory was Rip was working very hard in that match to shine, and he easily outshined the other three wrestlers who were, you know, obviously – much more in demand around the world. Um, the one one little bit of negative was there was a period of time where Rip was booking, and the talent in the Northwest just wasn't it wasn't the top level time period, and a lot of the wrestlers were stale. And I think I just just said that he he booked during a, a down period of time, and I think that's what bothered Larry, and I, I, you know, I just had to say it wasn't necessarily his dad's fault. It was just, it was just one of those things, and I think he appreciated that, and he came back, and he, he said he'd, he'd already purchased the book and, and thought it was really good. It, just that one little, little aspect of the book bothered him. I, my friend Ed, I, Ed Moretti, I sent him a book, and he was kind enough to to say that he was really, really enjoying the book. A um, few others, you know, have, have reached out and said that, you know, they're they're enjoying it as well. I got the, a nice plug from Meltzer today in, in his, the Observer, and and he thought it was an important book for historians, and and so yeah, there's there's been some nice nice things said about it. 
do you have anyone so far within the industry that reached out to talk about the book that you didn't necessarily know is going to read it? Uh, maybe someone that you haven't actually met or conversed with that you would know from the wrestling world that I took the time to say something? Not yet. Not yet. It's um, The book came out the last day of September, I believe, and I didn't get a copy for another couple weeks. They, they always send authors some copies and you have a chance to buy some and and at that point which has been about two weeks ago then you're mailing out you know the um, complimentary issues that you want to send out to people so that's been about two weeks ago you know we sent sent one to Jim Cornette and and Meltzer and different different people who you know might might plug the book um but no, at least not yet. I haven't received any comments from people that I didn't realize were, were had ordered the book or were reading the book. Now, looking at the landscape of things as we sit now, do you anticipate coming out with additional books? You know, and kicking around, I, I on as. I honestly think I've done just about all I can on Portland. But I'm kicking around an idea of, of maybe thinking about a book on Hawaii. And Hawaii was, a, to me, just a fascinating territory. Um, there's been a very nice coffee house book that Ed Francis did, um, a coffee table book. It's a big book with glossy pictures. It's it, it's very, very quality, um, and it's a really, really well-put-together book. But it doesn't go into the necessarily the nitty-gritty what happened every week for Hawaii wrestling, and uh, I think there's still some room there where you could have both books and learn something new. Um, with both books, I, if if we get one together is what I mean. Another interesting thing about Hawaii, I found Hawaii wrestling so fascinating that when I was in college, I learned about interlibrary loan. And what that is, you can get newspapers from around the country if a certain library has that. And so I interlibrary loaned the Honolulu newspaper from a college in Illinois, and I'm not sure why a college in Illinois had the Honolulu paper. But I would get three months at a time, like from the 60s. And I'd go th- and it was came on microfilm, so you had to go through a microfilm reader to look at it. And I'd get the results from those fantastic cards. And the interesting thing about Hawaii is they had their core base of wrestlers, who I always thought really highly of, guys like Ripper Collins and King Curtis and Sam Steamboat. But then they would have the wrestlers going back and forth from Japan, back and forth from to Australia, and those were always high-level wrestlers. And those guys would just fill out their cards. And um, 
I had a chance to interview Ed Francis and Lord Blears, and I really talked to Lord Blears to try to get him to tell me or to affirm how great those cards were. And I, I kind of asked in so many different ways. I almost annoyed him because he kept reiterating that it was the local guys who drew the card, who drew the house. And the other guys, you know, even if it was guys like Bruno showing up or Baba or the Sheik, those were just guys that were filling out the card. But to me, they just made those cards just unbelievable. So there's, there's, we're kicking around that idea. I think that would be a, a interesting book. Uh, did you actually get to go to Hawaii at any point to watch professional wrestling, or was it something you enjoyed from afar? It was something that I joined, uh, enjoyed from afar. I remember. Um, one of the things that I'm I'm kicking around a, a way to start the book. My very first wrestling magazine that I bought was in the fall of 1971, and it was a ring wrestling. And then the back of those books, magazines, they would have um, eyewitness reports from different cards. And one of the reports was from Hawaii. And now in 1971, I'm 11 years old. And I don't know wrestlers from the national standpoint. I don't know all the wrestlers and, and who they are. So I'm reading reading this article, and the main event that they talked about was King Curtis and Sam Steamboat. And I'm reading through that match. I don't know either one of those those wrestlers, but I'm just captivated by the way the person wrote and the story that the match told. And here I, I went back now as I'm kicking around the, this idea, and I had to go in my garage, and the cover's gone of that magazine. But I found that magazine, and I, I reread those, uh, that little story, and, and I found it just as compelling today as I did, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and that's to me what Hawaii did, you know, how how it excited me. But no. I never got a chance to see wrestling in Hawaii. Uh, Hawaii, for a lot of its run in wrestling, was sort of a stopping-off place for wrestlers either going to Japan or returning from Japan. You didn't see a lot of the mainland wrestlers stay for long-term in Hawaii. Do you think that the fact that it didn't have a lot of the long-term mainland wrestlers in it, a lot of people slept on Hawaii as a territory, or do you think that it gets the right amount of attention from fans remembering the territories, or do you think that there's another reason that people sleep on it? I think a a lot of the time is – you know, a lot of a lot of the time, people were a little bit didn't understand Portland wrestling, and a lot of it is because it's so far out on the West Coast, and the magazines focused on on New York and and Atlanta and, and North Carolina, so there was not a lot of you know people who are in other parts of the the country weren't 
weren't as aware of what was going on in Oregon. And Hawaii was even more removed. There, there was one excellent correspondent. His name was George, and his last name was B-E-P-P-U. And any information that came out of Hawaii came from that gentleman. And he was a photographer, and, and he, he wrote some stories that were reached the magazines. But there just wasn't a lot of information coming out of there, you know. And and as I look at here, I've I've just brought up one one card, the main events Dory Funk, and this is in 19, January of 1971. Dory Funk defending the NWA title against Don Leo Jonathan. The the next match is King Curtis versus Billy Robinson. The the next one, which would still be a main event, this obviously was a was a really big card. Uh Don Morocco and Sam Steamboat beating Lonnie Main and Ripper Collins. And then for some reason Tojo Yamamoto was on that card. He must have been going somewhere to Japan or, or whatever. He's not a name that would normally be be on a, a card in Hawaii but you know, and you you go down and you look, and it's like every single card is like, that's a good card, that's a good card. You know, there's not very many cards that you look through and say, oh, that that doesn't look like a, a card that I'd want to have gone to. We talked earlier on people that came into Portland that may have been an odd choice and someone that didn't seem to fit in. Looking back on things, can you think of anyone that never did make it to the Portland Territory, and we'll excuse Tracy Smothers, who we already mentioned, (laughs) that maybe you would have expected them at some point in time to have passed through? I've thought about this question, and it's an excellent question. There's There's a handful of wrestlers that would have fit into Portland very, very well, and uh, and just never made it here. Buddy Landell, I feel, would have would have could have taken that Buddy Rose spot, uh, you know. And, and I think he would have done very very well here. Uh, Joe Laduke, I think, would have would have really really Portland liked to have those big big heels, you know, the Bull Ramuses, the Rasputin who wrestled as Black Angus, you know those really, really bigger wrestlers. So I think Joe LaDuke would have fit in. The Mongolian Stomper would have fit in through the 70s as well. You know, and he, and he wrestled in San Francisco and, and Calgary, so it's kind of close. We're kind of a territory that's close by, but for some reason they those those three wrestlers were the three that really come to mind, could have really done some good business in Portland. Now, there's one person that never wrestled in Oregon until much, much later in his career, well after the time of the Don Owen era. Now he lives in the Pacific Northwest, that being Kevin Sullivan. Do you think if the timing was right and Kevin Sullivan had lived here in the earlier part of his career, that he would have been a factor in Portland wrestling. Oh, definitely. He would have fit in either either way as a heel or a babyface. Um and Portland uh 
didn't see a lot of that style of a heel that he was. There was just a a touch of when Abuda Dean was here, and Abuda Dean was the son of King Curtis. Kevin Sullivan took a lot of his gimmick from King Curtis. That's the only person I I can think of that would have come close to the Kevin Sullivan heel gimmick. Um, of course, you know in the in the late seventies. Kevin wrestled as a babyface and was a was a good looking guy at that point, you know, especially in San Francisco and and uh, he he definitely would have had success. When you look at the territorial days, Portland, of course, encompassed Oregon and Washington. But when you go up a bit more north, as far as the United States goes, you hit Alaska. And Alaska was a place that, in the territory days, did not really have a set territory in it, despite the fact that wrestling in modern times is doing very well there at the independent level. And there's obviously wrestling fans in Alaska do you think that if the Portland office had tried to do tours of Alaska, that's something that would have been successful? Or do you think that the geography just would have prevented it from being too successful? I think they would have drawn if they'd gone up to Alaska, but I think I think it probably would have been cost prohibitive to go up there because they, they probably would fly and that would probably be an expense that would make it not worth the time, you know, and, and uh, I know that there had been short little tours, you know, way back in the, in the fifties. And, and sometimes I think uh, maybe the Vancouver office would, would give it a shot up there, but um I just think the cost kind of prohibited from having it be a regular regular stop. Fair enough. Well, we are down to the last few minutes of the show today, and I want to make sure that you have enough time to plug anything you would like, say anything you would like to the listener. floor is yours. Well, I have three books called Excitement in the Air, The Voices of Northwest Wrestling, and there's three three different volumes. Uh, we tried to break up the interviews so that one, now, volume one wasn't the very, very best one. They, there were some good quality interviews in the third one as well. The third one also has some some interviews that we conducted in the last year. Uh, Mike Miller and the Grappler, Joey Jackson, um, uh, and a few others. So they're set upon some current. In Volume 2, we ran a lot of uh, uh, Buddy Wayne. He had two different interviews in the bulletin. So we captured an interview with Nick Wayne as well, and that's that's from about a year ago. So Nick Wayne, you know, on his views of, of what's, 
what's to come. And we talked about, you know, what it was like being in high school and you're flying off to Atlantic City one week, you know, on one weekend and wrestling and maybe working two shows and then coming back to a, a regular school life and and what some of his friends had to say. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Then we have uh, Katie Bar the Door, uh, which is a timeline and a look at the history of Portland wrestling. Uh, we tried to look at all the different wrestlers and important happenings, especially from 1960 to 1992. Um, and then this latest book, The Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers from the House of Action, which is every wrestler that wrestled in uh, Port- at the Portland Sports Arena and and uh, even as obscure as one one match, um, one other fun story I'll, I'll tell you. Sometimes it was hard to figure out um, exactly about a wrestler. And, and Don Owen, when he would call in the results to the newspaper, that kind of became the official record. If you didn't see a match, you know, if you're looking back at the newspapers or the microfilm, and I just got an image at certain times, um, and I'll give you some examples. Like one time, there's a result of Frenchie Robier, who was a part-time Portland wrestler, and he he had a match in the early 70s. And I thought, well, that's a little strange because Frenchie Robier was not in Portland at that time. It was in the Maritimes. And I looked up to see what wrestler was in uh, Vancouver at that time because uh, Sean Reagan had come down from Vancouver and Frenchie Martin was up there. And so I know Don Owen gets on the phone and he's calling in the results and he didn't say Frenchie Martin. He said Frenchie Robier. So that's kind of a fun thing. Also, I know Don gets on the phone calling in the results and I know there's instances where he just doesn't remember a wrestler's name. So there's several instances where he said, Kay Fabian wrestled this match, and, uh, or Matt Burns. And I know, I know it just came down to where Don couldn't remember who the wrestler was in that match, and he just, he just threw out those names. So that's, that's kind of fun, and that just became like the official part of the record. So that's kind of fun, something fun that I learned, and that's from the Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers. They're all available on Amazon, and uh, I think that you'll like any of those books that you that you purchase. They they contain lots of information, and and you know the interview books are a little bit different. You're going to hear from the wrestler's own voice and the other two are, are a little bit more research based and, and information on what happened. All right. Well, Mike Rogers, as always, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. We appreciate you taking the time whenever we get to do this. Best of luck on the continued success of the, newest book i plan to pick up a copy and dig into that thing and anytime you got something else coming up you know you're always welcome here 
Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. I have a lot of fun visiting with you, and, and I really appreciate it. All right. Well, fans, definitely, definitely pick up a copy of the Encyclopedia of Portland Wrestlers. I know it's going to be a fantastic read, lots of information, lots of history in that thing. Oh, Ken Hamlin's got some pictures in there. You know he was very good at what he did. So it's going to be a trip down memory lane for a lot of you and education for a lot more of you. So pick up a copy. Also, in my show notes, I forgot to mention Anarcho Pro is running in Portland, Oregon tomorrow. So speaking of Portland and the Northwest, you have another show tomorrow if you're in the area. And don't forget you can find me at Russell Club in Nampa, Idaho, tomorrow night as I make my way back home to Russell Club. Everybody continue to be safe out there. Support your local independence. We will be back with you Sunday afternoon with Stonehenge out of the great state of Minnesota. And one week from today, we will be back with you with the Texas Outlaw. So make sure you join us, and we will talk to you soon. could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.